All right, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started in the class. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us, and we just thank you for, for the freedom and the opportunity that we have to come here and worship you, to, to learn your, about your Bible, and to do things that hopefully we will be able to take out into the world and, and bring others to you, Lord. I just thank you for the holiday season that we've just gone through and the meaning of it and, and what it's all about, Lord. And I just ask that you bless us as we go through this class, and it's in Christ let me pray. Amen. Most of y'all have a good Christmas? Good. Any of y'all stab yourselves in the leg? Okay, I'm the only one. <laughs> uh, now I uh, was opening a present for my, my nephew and had a sharp knife and was trying to keep him from getting close to it and went through a uh, zip tie and straight into my leg. So that was, that was fun. So <laughs> luckily I didn't have to get stitches. Probably needed them, but when we don't like to go to the hospital. Yeah, throw some dirt on it, right? So. <laughs> oh, I've kept it pretty clean, so it's uh, it's healed up nicely. So, yeah. So, all right. So, the, um, for you, those who weren't here last week, we've been taught, we've been doing it, or haven't been here at all. I'll, I'll kind of recap real quick because this is going to be the last week in this series. We've been going through a series what's called The Problem of God, and the idea around the series is looking at things from a non-Christian or skeptic type uh, view, and this last two weeks we've been looking at the problem of Jesus and, and issues that um, people outside the world, or outside, I'm sorry, outside the church have uh, with some of these things. So we're going to continue this series. Last week we, we looked at um, the claim that a lot of people will say that is that Jesus never actually said the words, I am God, or actually claimed to be God, and we actually go back and debunk that and look at that. So what we're going to look at this week is the things that only God could do. And there's uh, four things that we're going to look at uh, today, uh, three that the, the, was the fulfillment of a lot of Scripture, and then the fourth one is the basically conquering of death, the defeat of death that we're going to look at. So... There were three main symbols or major symbols in Judaism that pointed to God and three very important things to the Jewish people during that time. That was the temple itself, the Torah, which we call the Old Testament, or the Old Law, and then you had what was God's return, which was the, you know, the prophet, prophecy of God's return to what they would call Zion or Jerusalem at the time. And so if we look at the temple... This was a very important, this was the centerpiece of the Jewish religion. It was the centerpiece of the, the towns of that, 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 of that time and those different areas. And this is where God's presence resided, and this is where people's sins were forgiven. So people would come. This is where the sacrifices happened every year, where they would go to and, and get their, their sins forgiven for the things that they'd done through the years. So they'd have the animal sacrifices there. This is where the chief priests were. When we see all the instructions in the Old Testament of how the temple was to be built, what rooms were to be in the temple. There were certain rooms that, you know, where God's presence was that even, you know, the only certain people could go in that, that room. And a lot of it was even in particular times. If someone went in that room who wasn't supposed to be there, they were instantly killed. And so we, we look at those type of the things there. So the temple was a very important piece 
of the, their Jewish religion at that time. Well, Jesus himself was the fulfillment of both of these purposes. So he actually made the temple no longer necessary, and this is why there was a lot of pushback from the Jewish people because the Jewish people at the time, they thought Jesus was going to come and come into the temple and kind of set up a throne there and rule from the Jewish temple. And this is completely different than what he did. If we look at Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, and this kind of shows his authority over the temple and what, you know, the way he came into the temple. There's some other examples of, of him being in the temple as younger and teaching there. But this is kind of where he set his authority over the temple. And this was partly because of the way it was being treated, but also there's an there's a important thing to look at here of how he has command or authority over the temple as well. So if we look at verse, starting at verse 15, he says, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, It is not written, and pay attention to this, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you may have made it a robber's den or a den of thieves, as some versions say. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began to seek how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. So there's a, if we go back and look, in this verse he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. I mean, he is literally, and we talked about this a little bit last week, where he talks about he, him being God, and he is calling the temple his how. You know, he's quoting from, I forget where that's quoting from. I was going to say, I think it's in Isaiah. Um, you know, but again, he is referring to this. He's put, putting himself in this position of this is his house, and he's coming in and cleaning his house. And so this is what, you know, not only did was this authority, and this is where a lot of the chief priests and stuff and the scribes, again, they, they began to seek out how to kill him here again, because they, they could see his power, and they, they could see the authority that he was uh, you know, presenting to the, the common people, again, coming through and claiming to be God. So they went out, and, you know, so this is him coming in and declaring the fact that this is his temple. And there's some other verses around this and stuff, but eventually you know, he's making the temple itself unnecessary. Because back in that day, in order to basically connect with or, or have some kind of connection with God, you, you went to the temple. And with him coming and fulfilling what he's going to fulfill, you, the, the, the temple is no longer a physical presence. You know, he establishes his kingdom through, a spirit, through spirituality and a spiritual kingdom, which we, we look at and see. So the other thing that he comes in and abolishes or fulfills, and in a way he actually abolishes it as well, is the Old Testament or the Torah. He ends it by fulfilling it. And that's why this day and age we do not go by the Old Testament. He brought in the New Law or the New Testament, which we follow and go by. We use the Old Testament as references and examples, but we do not have to follow the laws of the Old Testament, which I'm very glad because that is a very time-consuming and and dirty and just you you talk about legalism. That that's your ultimate uh, and impossible. Correct. 
So, and what's interesting here, if we, you know, by knowing the Old Law and knowing the Old Testament, what's interesting here, if you look at Jesus starting his ministry out, um, we, we refer to this, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, and there's a lot of parallels here between the Old Testament and the Old Law, the Ten Commandments that started out in Exodus, and then the way he starts out a lot of his ministry with the, with the Sermon on the Mount. He actually makes ten points, which I think was done on purpose. When he starts his Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew 5, he starts out with nine blesseds, and then his final commandment is in there is rejoice. So he's, you know, he talks about blessed are those, blessed are those, and then at the end, at the tenth point, he said <coughs> rejoice, and then he goes on into the rest of his, um, his sermons here. And it's a sermon for, for three chapters. Which is, which is really interesting. And, and what's funny about this, if you go through and I'm, we're not going to go through the whole thing today, but he really hits on a lot of the major points of the Old Testament law. And this is what's where, um, if we look halfway through uh, 5, if we look at Matthew 5, 17 and 18, it says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So the whole, the law itself, the Old Testament, everything was written for ultimately for Christ to come and to fulfill it, so that way we, he could you know, eventually bring us salvation. And it says there, it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so the interesting thing here we look at too is if you, if you read down through, you know, you read through five, you get through the Beatitudes, and, and he talks about the fulfillment of the law, and then he goes on, and he goes on into a lot of the Old Testament things around divorce, around all these you know, different subjects that were, I guess I would say, you know, important at the time. It's still important today. You would, he would start it out, and he says, you have heard. But then he would say, but I say. And this is where, again, he is, he is pushing his authority over. He is taking the Old Testament. He's taking the old law. And he's saying, okay, you've heard Moses say this, or you've heard the old, you know, the, old, the old Testament say this, but then he would say, this is what I say. He, wouldn't, he didn't say, well, this is what I think, or this is an opinion, or you know, this would be better. He is saying, I say this, meaning I have the authority here. I'm taking what was said in the old law, and I'm telling you what we're going to do now in the, in the new law. So again, if you look at the very end of 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as having authority and not as their scribes. The scribes, would, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would tell you what the old law said and how we were to fulfill, or to fulfill it, to, to obey it, to do those type of things. Jesus came and said, nope, we're not doing it this way. This is the way you need to do it now. This is what I say. And again, this is a lot of the reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees, again, continued to see what he was doing and see the authority that he would speak in. And again, so it, it was this more and more of this pointing to the fact that he was God and he had authority over what he was saying. And no matter, he didn't really care what the scribes and the Pharisees had to say, he had come to fulfill this law and to bring in an usher in a new one. And then lastly, the third you know, big thing was God's return to Jerusalem. If you look in Isaiah, there's several verses, uh, the first one being uh, Isaiah 24, 23. 
<clears throat> then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be forever or be before his elders. And again, when, it, when they would read this, they, the way they saw this was that the Lord was going, God was going to come back almost kind of like a knight in shining armor in a, on a white horse. And he was going to come, and he was going to come in Jerusalem. He was going to sit on the throne in the temple. And he was going to basically conquer and judge the rest of the world. And the Jewish, you know, they were going to be set up. And this is how they thought things were going to happen. If you read in Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6, he said, Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The re uh, recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be uh, unstopped. Then the lame will, will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for you joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabia. This was completely different than what was expected. right? I mean, and I, can get, I get this. So if you read through Isaiah, and you read a lot of the prophecy, and, and a lot of the, the prophetic type books in the, in the Old Testament talk about God's, God's coming back, there is that idea that he's going to come back just with a bang and with a vengeance and, and rule and conquer all the evil that's around Jerusalem you know, and, their, and their suppression with the Roman Empire at the time. And you see all these things, and he did all these things, but he did it like we've just been learning about in the last couple of weeks. He did it completely different than what was expected. They expected him to come back as royalty in, the royal, in, the, in a royal manner that we think of today. And, and even in their times, you know, as a king and to, to set up his army, he was going to come back and, and establish an army, and he was going to basically conquer and, and Christianity and the you know, Jewish religion was just going to you know, conquer the world. I, I kind of, that's the kind of feeling you get around that. But then he comes in and it's like, okay, well, you know, like Nathan talked about Thursday night and, and Dad talked about it as well. He comes back as a, as a very poor baby born in a cave, more than likely, and thrown in a food trough. Well, not thrown, laid in a food trough. And, you know, I mean, his, his birth is, is worse than most births we can we can think of you know it's not a it's not a pretty it's not a nice thing and then he comes up through a poor household i say poor you know a common you know his his dad was a carpenter so it would have been similar to you know a regular type tradesman type person coming up so and then all of a sudden he gets older you know he's 12 and he starts to speak with a little bit of authority but then he you know as around he gets 30 years old all of a sudden he goes around Everyone's grew up with him. He's not really done anything, you know, but, you know, besides when he was young and the temple would be the examples we get. All of a sudden he comes out of this little town and he's 30 years old and he starts claiming to be God. He's got 12 people. He's got some fishermen, some low-class people, you know, people who really have no high upstanding. A lot of scholars believe him. a lot of them would have been illiterate. You know, so it's like you, you look at his coming and his you know his army let's say that he's going to come and conquer the world with and it'd be like me going into lake park finding 12 you know of our most common people in lake park and saying hey we're going to go conquer the world 
And, and that's, you know, so he got a lot of pushback there, but then he continued to push through and showed who he was. So it was completely different than what was expected, and he did it in the complete, you know, they didn't expect him to come back and die and to, you know, to go through all this stuff that he went through. So it's, it's completely different than what they expected, but he still did it. And then the final thing that he did, which was, and this is the ultimate thing, and this is the ultimate actually thing of any religion in the world that we have today, was the resurrection. This is the key or the center point of Christianity. And if we look through many religions and many people in history, there's many people who have claimed to be God. Every single one of them has died, but only one of them has actually was resurrected or came back from the dead, and that's Christ. Now, we have some out there who say that uh, their gods or their prophets or their whatever are eventually going to come back, um, be reincarnated in some form, but we have yet to see that happen yet, so it's not going to happen. And like I said, the resurrection itself is the very center of Christianity. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. So we can celebrate the birth, in which we should. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. The, the, the Bible talks about the birth of Jesus in a very important event in history. We can celebrate that. It's wonderful. We can have Christmas around it. We can do all those things. But if come several months later, there's no Easter, there's no point. I mean, we're just passing gifts and celebrating uh, some baby's birth. So... And even, they talk about that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19. And he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So basically he's saying, you know, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, and there was some debate around here where whether people could actually be raised from the dead or some people didn't believe in the resurrection. And so, the, you know, Paul's talking to him here saying, look, if this didn't happen, what you're doing and what you're doing is worthless. And, it, and it's worthless. And even all those who have perished before us, who supposedly have been forgiven now, you know, it's, it's worthless to them. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. And uh, there's some different versions uh, of how that's said. Basically, he said, if we're following this Christ who was never resurrected, then you really need to feel sorry for us because what we're doing is just worthless and a waste of our time, and basically we're making a big fools of a big fool of ourselves. And so, this is the centerpiece, and this is the key to Christianity. To, to if you look at, like we said, if we look at all the religions in the world, there's only one. We're the only one who has a leader and a Savior who has come back from the dead. You can look at all the other ones. Prophet Muhammad, he died. All the other famous people who, who you know, pushed up through religions, every single one of them have died, and none of them have come back. When they were dead, they were dead. So why should we believe in the, the claim? Why should we actually believe if all the other religions, you know, none of them came back, why should we believe then that Jesus actually came? Because this is going to be, if we looked at this from a skeptic or an unchristian or non-Christian point of view, you know, they're not going to believe this, so why should we? You know, and they'll come up with four pushbacks and four claims around this. And some of you may have heard these before. The first one is, Jesus didn't really die. 
Uh, and this is probably the most popular one I've heard um, of the theories around this is Jesus didn't really die. He basically fainted or passed out. Or, you know, they thought he was dead and they buried him. And then, well, he got a little bit better in three days after being crucified. If anyone knows what a cruci the crucifixion is, you, there's no, you know you're not going to get up and walk away from that three days later if you passed out. But uh, this is the position of Islam. Um, if you actually look at the position of Islam, they believe that he didn't really die. He just passed out, and then they, they threw him in some dirt, and then he woke up three days later. Uh, and then this is the point of many atheists. So if you look at this, and if you actually look at this just from a historical content or context, the, most even historians and scholars, whether they're atheists or Christians or not, will reject this. And anyone, I'm, I'm going to ask this before, anyone know why they reject this theory? What were the Romans really good at? Killing people. Especially cru the crucifixion and torture and the killing of people. And so just some brief things. The Romans were experts, like I said, they're killing people. They would crucify sometimes up to 6,000 people a day. They knew, they, they were very efficient at it, and they made sure the people were dead. It wasn't one of these things that you're going to, you know, walk away from and get up three days after, you know. If you understood what happened, and most of y'all do, if, you've seen, if anyone in here has seen The Passion of the Christ, that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea what a crucifixion, what a crucifixion was like. Um, most of the time, you know, they didn't do this to Jesus because he died before. But most of the time, they'd break your legs. You know, they, they pierced your side. They, I mean, all this thing that they did, it was a horrible torture. And it wasn't something that you would just wake up from. Uh, I mean, I, I don't care who you are. I don't care how tough you are. This is not something that, that you're going to go through and, and not serve. Even if you just passed out and they took you off and threw you in a, in a, in a tomb, you're, you're still going to die. It's not something that you recover from. So even most historians reject this theory and, and do not give this any credit. The second pushback was that the body was stolen. That the, the disciples, this is the theory now, the current modern theory, is that the disciples stole the body, hid it, and then made it look like Jesus had resurrected and made up the stories of the resurrection and then made up the story of him being around afterwards and spreading his message and then going back to, to heaven. So what's interesting is this is not a new theory. In fact, this is the very first theory the disciples themselves had. If you look at John 20, verses 1 and 2, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. With everything that Jesus had told them, <clears throat> him telling them he was going to die, him telling them that he was going to come back, they still did not believe it. They still thought that someone had stolen the body. <clears throat> So, I mean, if you have the disciples themselves thinking this as well. So, again, like I said, this is not a new theory. But, again, this doesn't hold water. And there's many reasons why it doesn't hold water. 
But scholars agree that the writings around this are, are very trustworthy, and, there, and there's several reasons why. One, the, and we've actually talked about this a little bit. Um, I can't remember which uh, series or which subject it was. But the writers actually, if the disciples had made this up, they would not have put unflattering things about them in the writings, especially that day and age, because <clears throat> when you put those type of things in there, it discredits you, and so you're not trusted. But if you look, it shows that they were scared. Obviously, they were slow to believe because the first thing they thought was that someone had stolen the body, not that someone had come back or that he had actually raised from the dead <clears throat> and come back. And then you also have Thomas's doubt that he had there. The second thing, women were the key eyewitnesses. In this day and age, a woman's testimony was not allowed in court because women were considered untrustworthy and not believable. So if you were making up a story, you wouldn't have women as your key eyewitnesses. And if you go through and look at all four Gospels, the very first people to report him stolen, or I'm sorry, report him, his resurrection or not there, were women. So if you were making up a story in this day and age, <clears throat> you would not have put women as the primary or the first witnesses or eyewitnesses to him resurrecting. Because in that day and age, not a single person would have believed it solely based on the fact that the women were the eyewitnesses. And that's the kind of the, 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 the then, then we have the strongest, I'm sorry, the strongest argument against it was the disciples would have made up this story, committed to a hoax, but then when willing to die and suffer for it just so it could continue to spread. Now, who in here, no matter what kind of story, if you were following someone and that person died, who in here is going to make up a story that that person was resurrected and then stick to that story when they start cutting your guts out? I know I'm not. If I'm lying about something and someone's saying, hey, we're going to cut you in half or we're going to feed you to a line, I'm like, whoa, look. This whole thing was made up, look, you know, funny, you know, let's go on. No, they, they stuck to their story even as they were being beheaded, hung up on, hung up, um, on a cross, all tortured, all these things. They did not waver on their story. So again, I mean, you look at this, the, and there's a ton of other things that, you know, we look at in some of this we're going to look at, and we looked at already, is how fast Christianity spread, all these different things. And so, this, again, this is one of those arguments that just does not hold water. The third one, which is almost humorous, they went to the wrong tomb. They accidentally, in that, the small town that they were in, or the outskirts that they were in, they accidentally went to a tomb that had been opened, was being prepared for someone, and so there was just a mistake. You know, and you know how women are, they, they, they you know, get dramatic and uh, <laughs> right you know that's kind of the, the story there that you know the whole thing was just they went to the wrong tomb again who in here would get confused on where a loved one was buried you ever had a gone to the cemetery and accidentally went to the wrong graveside or the wrong tomb of someone that you knew and were close with yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, well, we thought they were here. They're over here now, yeah. So, I mean, again, this, this, especially this day and age in the area that this was, this is not something that, we, you know, it's not like, it wasn't like the, 
the vaults and all this stuff in Valdosta or these massive graveyards that we see where it may, it may could take me an hour to find someone's you know, gravestone or something like that. They, they knew where this cave was. It was a huge rock. You know, everyone knew where he was put. So, and then the other thing around this is if this really happened, those in power would have quickly pointed it out, right? It's like, okay, y'all are mistaken here. We, we have him right here. You know, they, they would not have allowed this to continue and go on. So that kind of, you can kind of squash that one pretty quick. <clears throat> and then the fourth one, the fourth kind of prominent theory, is that disciples borrowed the idea of the resurrection, that they actually stole it from <clears throat> other cultures and old, other religions of that time. But if you actually look at this, there was really no one to borrow this, this theory from in that day and age. Most people, even if you look at a lot of the Greek mythology and, um, of, of that time, even some of the gods in, in, the, in, their, theory, in their, their religion couldn't really bring people back from the dead. Once you were dead, you were dead, and you didn't want to come back because you, you, know, you had gone to that spiritual plane, you had gone through, and you've gotten rid of the physical world. Why would anyone want to come back to that? You know, because you received your great reward, and there's all those different theories around the, of the culture. But the surrounding cultures didn't support this, and so there was really no one to borrow this theory from of, of a resurrected Savior or, or theory. So like I said, the, the goal was to leave the physical world, and, and you would never come back. And so that, that kind of squashes that theory again. Um, and then if you actually even look at this a little bit more, the disciples themselves, which we saw in the second one, actually doubted the resurrection itself. If we look at John 20, verses 3 through 10, this is a continuation of verses 1 and 2. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stopped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. When the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings, then the disciples who had heard reached the tomb first, also went in, saw, and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So they actually, it wasn't until they actually walked into his tomb, saw his garments, saw that he was not there, that they actually kind of, you know, it's kind of that aha moment, oh, now we know what he was saying. So even up until this point in John, they really didn't even believe in the resurrection. So if they didn't believe in it, why in the world are they going to make something up or borrow, supposedly borrow it from, because it wasn't even a theory in their mind yet. This, this, they didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't connect to this until they actually walked into the tomb and realized what had actually happened. Then they went home. So like I said, the, the, the disciples themselves actually doubted the resurrection as well. So wrapping all that up, you have all these things. You have all this evidence where you, you can disprove the, the major theories around you know, what happened with Jesus. You have actual people who aren't you know, the disciples. You have historians of that time who talk about Jesus' resurrection. You have all this evidence that, that talks about that. But ultimately, if we, if we point out to it and go to it, you know, we can't, you know, and no one's going to deny that Jesus actually existed. You know, if we, we looked at that as well in a historical context. <clears throat> we know Jesus was alive, but then we get to the thing of, well, he was just a really good teacher, a good prophet, 
he, you know, he, he didn't really resurrect, but he was a good person to follow. Well, if you actually follow the theory of that, and you actually read the Bible, and those people actually read the Bible, you would, you would come to th- one of three conclusions. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. If you do not believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, you, you were left then, because you, you're eliminating the Lord's side, you're left with either a liar or a lunatic. You know, and so if you go to the liar side, they say, well, he was just severely mistaken. So who do we, what do we call someone who is severely mistaken who thinks that they're God? Liar. <laughs> or, or whatever. If, if someone claimed in... Yes, yeah, it was actually the, he rolled up his, the actual coverings, but he actually folded the, what would cover his head, he actually folded that up. So it wasn't, uh, I'm not sure exactly, I'd have to look at the context and and the historical times, but there was something along the the, the reason he, the way he folded that up, when the disciples, that's part of the reason why they saw that, it wasn't like the body just disappeared or someone had come and snatched it real quick. Whoever left that left it with a purpose and a meaning the way that it was laid out. Yes? Similar to what I think that the folded linen symbolized that the Jewish people or the men, whenever they were finished eating a meal, <coughs> that they would fold up and, and lay it in a certain way, which shows they were finished with the meal. Yes. And they, they theorized or they believed that was done to say that he was yeah. finished. He was finished, yep. Yep. Yeah, there was a lot of cultural things, symbolic things in the way they would do things, and that a lot of that stuff was one of them. But if we look at this, so I, I, I'll go another theory. Say someone, I'm trying to think. Some, if someone claimed to be a car and would have tried, was severely mistaken to, to the fact that they were a car, and they drove around making car noises and did all this stuff. What would we say or what would we do with that person? We'd put them in the <laughs> right? Because no matter how severely mistaken they are, they're not a car. And I love C.S. Lewis did a quote on this, and this is a very good quote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And that's why we go back to the only being a good teacher doesn't hold water. Because again, if you look at his teachings and what he actually taught and, and who he said he was, and you actually read the Bible, there's no way you can just go back and say, oh, he was just a good teacher. He was a good person. He had some good concepts. No, I mean, he literally, if he wasn't God, then he was crazy. 
and you had a bunch of crazy people following a crazy man who somehow eventually started a religion who conquered the world. And that just doesn't hold water. We've seen tons of crazy people come in the past who claimed to be God or a prophet of God, and most of it ended in a tragedy, uh, you know, in several, you know, some of them killing all themselves, all, you know, some of them burning up in, a, in their compounds. Uh, you know, that's the kind of things that happen when crazy people come and claim to be God. Not what, we're, well, not what we see today and what we follow today. So, looking at all this, in the end, we're not Christians because it's easy. And, th- and this is the, when we talk to non-Christian people, we, we need to make sure we, we, we focus this. Because I think sometimes we, we pass on the thought of, well, I've shown you all these things that, you know, I've countered all these things, these these 10 things that we've talked about in the Problem of God series, I've been able to convince you, so now come and, and follow God, and it's going to make your life easier. It's going to, everything's going to be easier. That's not the case. In fact, and I'll say this, I, being a Christian is harder than being a non-Christian. Now, in the long run, it's not. But while we live on this world, it's much easier to, to be a non-Christian. I mean, if I didn't have to get up on the weekends... I didn't have to do these, these, all these, you know, do all this stuff to try to bring people to Christ, talk to people, live a good life. I could do, go out and drink. I could do drugs. You know, I could just go around and do the things that I wanted to do. That's easier. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's fun for a time. Doing that kind of stuff can be fun for a time. Now, the consequences of doing all those things in the long run are not fun. We, we, we find that out. But in, in the moment and in that time, doing those things... Uh, when it comes to Christianity, is a lot easier. And, and I think sometimes we, we mislead people when they become Christians around that fact. You know, we need to focus on the fact that when, when God says, come and take up your cross and follow me, it's, it's not a small little styrofoam cross on wheels that we just kind of drag around, right? It's, it's, if we're taking up our cross, we're going to our death. That, that's what that meant in that time. So... It's not an easy thing. But here's the end. We are Christians because the tomb is empty and because Jesus is God. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. And this is the final verse and then our final thing I'll say, and then we'll, uh, we'll close this out. And this is what we need to remember. He got what we deserve, accomplishing for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he didn't stay dead. That's the, the whole, this whole class, this whole series, this is what all of this boils down to. This is the centerpiece of everything that we do here. It's the centerpiece of, of the communion. It's the centerpiece of our worship. It's the centerpiece, should be the centerpiece of our lives that we live out in the world. Because again, he got what we deserved. And he accomplished for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he didn't stay dead. I like that. Because that's the key. He didn't stay dead. He fulfilled the law. He, he, he basically did away with it. Came up with, a, you know, established a new law that we're following today. And made our lives, honestly, a whole lot easier than what it would have been if we were still under the old law. So, any questions or comments through this?
very profound in my mind is that uh, the Sanhedrin figured that was going to happen too. Yeah. So that's why the tomb was sealed and guarded. Yeah. The Romans were also good at guarding things. <laughs> yes. You didn't get past these. And it wasn't. And it wasn't one. It was what, it was 100? a hundred? I think a hundred. I think it was a garrison. I can't remember what a garrison was. I want to say but 100, but it could be wrong. The point is, how would those 12 disciples go and overpower all them Romans and roll that stone back? Yeah. That whole thing just debunks yeah. that. The other point I want to make, too, is, is uh, the, 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 you know, the part about all these crazy people um, going off and recruiting more crazy people. Gamaliel talked about that in the fifth chapter of Acts when uh, uh, Peter and John were before the council and he was advising them on how to handle it. And his advice was, if it is not of God, it's going to go away. Yep. If it is, you can't overthrow it and you're going to fight against God. Yep. So. Yep. Self-fulfilling prophecy there. Go ahead. Uh, one thing that I... Um, even this, even the, his own apostles talked about that, how they didn't believe, they didn't understand. That. Even when Jesus came back, they still, they understood, kind of. Yeah. But it wasn't until they went to Jerusalem and received the Holy Spirit yeah. that they really, that's when they that's really, when they really they would give their life up. Well, I mean, if you look at it, and I, I kind of briefed over it, Thomas himself, I mean, he had Jesus standing in front of him and he didn't believe it until he could stick his fingers in the wounds. You know, so, so I mean, it, it's, I don't know. I, I can be a skeptical person, but I would think if, if I saw someone just appear right back, you know, in front of me that I, you know, I wouldn't have to worry about that. I, I see it. We're good, you know, but some of us are more stubborn than others. So, all right, well, I hope that y'all have enjoyed this series. I've enjoyed it. Um, I, I hope y'all have as well. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break for about a week or two, um, and then we're going to do one. We're going to look at angels. Uh, that was one of the uh, requests of one of the things that we, we look in the class. So we're going to study um, angels and, and probably spend a week or two on it. It just depends on how in-depth we, we get with that. And then I'm looking at um, another series that we're going to look at, and it's kind of kind of tied the, the, the this that we just looked at with the problem of God and then some of the stuff we looked at before then, it's really going to kind of wrap all that up, and it's called irresistible. And, and the idea around that is to take everything that we've learned and everything that we have and we know about God and make it irresistible. Because we, in, in some ways in the church and in, in Christendom, we've made Christianity resistible in, in some of the things that we do, some of the things we say. And so what we're going to do is look at how we can actually do a better job of, again, you know, our goal is to reach the unchurched, the non-Christians, and make it, and do it in such a way that we look at how it was, you know, and some of the things we're going to look at is kind of what we, as the Church of Christ, did uh, with the Restoration was going back to the first century church, you know, and how they spread the Word of God with a, a, about 100 people, and just basically in a, in a several-year time frame, just basically spread Christianity over the cross of the known world, how they did that. Because one of the things we're going to look at, they didn't have a Bible, right? 
you know, I think sometimes we think about the fact that, well, we have the Bible, and I think sometimes we forget that they didn't have what we had. You know, and they didn't have the technology. They didn't have the, the biggest technology of that day was the Roman road that allowed them to travel really fast in that, for that time frame. And so we're going to look at how we can actually get back to the basics of how they spread the gospel and how they made what they did irresistible to people. And I think it's going to be interesting. Some of you may not like it. Some of you hopefully will. Uh, but it's a little bit different view and standpoint on how we reach people uh, outside the church. So I hope you all enjoyed this series. Next week we'll do angels uh, for at least for a week or two, and then we'll move on. Thank you.